Hello and welcome to the Ormo Bats podcast. My name is Simon Ross and today I am joined by Professor Cathy Craig from Incisive. Cathy, hello, how are you? Good, thank you. We are just going to talk through a bit about your uh, journey and I suppose the, what the, the company is all about. But uh, mm-hmm. give us a sense, I suppose, for those who, who haven't heard of what you're doing, what, what is Incisive? So Incisive is a recently formed startup and in, of course, the tech sector. And what we really do is we're interested in finding new ways to understand and improve decision making in elite sports players. So we primarily use immersive technology, virtual reality at the minute. Um, I suppose through my research over many, many years, um, I think we've cracked and understood what it is that makes a player great. Um, it's essentially their ability to make great decisions, the ability to act in the right place at the right time in the right way. It's something that I'm calling a type of intelligence or action intelligence. So I suppose the company's really based around that concept, uh, around the behaviours of players but also the general public and how can we use this technology to help them to, I suppose, perform better and generally move better uh, in the more of a health context. You mentioned there through many years of research, yeah. take, take us back to before the startup, well, we'll come back to the, yeah. the, with the company and, and, and what's happening at the moment since, but you would have had a, a long career in academia. That's and, right. what, what's yeah. your background? Yeah. So I suppose I'm originally from Northern Ireland, uh, but at the age of 18, um, I suppose like most or quite a lot of people my age then, back in the late 80s, Northern Ireland wasn't the greatest place to to be and I sort of couldn't wait to get away. Um, Went to Edinburgh University. I didn't really know what to do after my A-levels, but I'd done a mixture of the sciences and I suppose like the arts. I did English Lit, Biology and Economics. And uh, somebody said to me, oh, well, your profile would suggest something maybe like psychology. So I'd always that interest in people. I'd always that interest, I suppose, in maybe trying to help people. Um, so I did psychology and business studies to start with M because you can take joint degrees there. But I quite quickly dropped the business studies because I really enjoyed the psychology. I really enjoyed that understanding what makes us take, understanding our behaviours, why we behave the way we do. And I suppose towards the end of my undergraduate degree, I fell in love with research. I fell in love basically with understanding how the brain controls movement, why we move, how we move and why sometimes we can't move. So that was essentially an undergraduate degree in psychology, uh, stayed on in Edinburgh to do a postgraduate degree, a PhD actually, um, because I realised well this research thing and malarkey, I really quite like it. I love numbers, I love being able to work out what's going on, I love designing experiments, I love using technology to be able to measure behaviour. So, so behaviour is the key in this? Behaviour is the key and if you think about it, behaviours are the source of everything we do. Well, movement is at the source of everything we do. From me speaking to you, <laughs> um, to us breathing, to us being alive actually. Without movement we wouldn't be alive and I always would, I said to my students, think of Stephen Hawking, so he just had that control of a muscle in his cheek and through that one muscle he was able to communicate. So if he didn't have that, it would have been you know, awful for him to not be able to communicate. So, you know, I think we underestimate the importance of movement and behaviour in general. Yeah. So through through your studies then, and you've gone to a, a teaching 
role? Uh, wh- wh- where were where were you at before you decided? Right, this I'm 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 forming this company. Well, I suppose I went to after my PhD. I went to France. I loved sport. I always did. I played hockey to a reasonably good level. I went to the sports science faculty in France after my PhD to do like postdoctoral work, which is what you would normally do. A lot of people said go to the states, but I really fancied going to Europe. I wanted to learn another language. Or I like those challenges. And it's quite funny because at the moment, as an entrepreneur, having given up my job, I go back to when I left Edinburgh to move to France, not speaking the language, not having a place to live, not having a bank account, feeling really quite out of my depth. Sorry, <laughs> that, uh, that feeling has come back uh, again. <laughs> but yet it was a very exciting time in my life. Yeah. And I think this is again. Um, so there's a lot of parallels with that stage of my life and what I'm re-experiencing now some 20 years later. So uh, Marseille was a great opportunity to learn a new language, but also, I suppose, deepen my knowledge of sport, deepen my understanding of things like decision-making in sport, which I suppose is now the key to what I'm doing. I also had a fantastic opportunity to work with Adidas Innovation Team Football in Marseille. It's where I discovered virtual reality as well. And I, through those connections, I had fantastic experiences. I was able to go to AC Milan and test some of the best players in the world and really try and understand why are they the best? I suppose, I mean, sport is a huge business, we know yeah. that, but I mean, even I suppose since 20 years ago, that idea that teams just need that, uh, they're always looking for that slight edge, it's all the Absolutely. incremental gains and all yes, those yeah. sort of phrases that you hear yeah. now right across any number of sports, but I, I suppose that the business side of it and the how lucrative it is is the reason why they're looking for those Absolutely. very small things. I mean, they estimate the global sports business or sports markets about six hundred billion pounds, which is absolutely massive. That's nuts, isn't and it? technology is playing a huge role in that. And the fastest growing sectors are things like sports data analytics mm-hmm. and also wearables and uh, coaching technologies. So you're right. Everybody's looking for that marginal gain. They're looking for that extra one to two percent. And I think what's interesting is, and I suppose it's the opportunity for us in Incisive, is that if you look at the technologies that exist, they tell you a lot of things about the physical differences between your players, maybe how strong they are, how fast they are. But what's really missing is that ability to understand their decision-making ability, measure it, but also then improve it. And I suppose that's the opportunity that we're trying to capitalise on within Incisive. Okay, so so tell me a little bit more about uh, Incisive. You mentioned uh, platform there you mentioned virtual reality yeah I, if i'm if i'm coming to you to say well what tell me how i could use this as yeah. a you know manager of a, a high level sports team yeah so to just step back and, and when i was really interested in trying to understand decision making it came from my own i suppose desire to to be a better player so sure. i played hockey but then i took up rugby when i went to uh, france and i played out half so out halves have to make quite a lot of decisions it's all about the decisions, it's all about yeah. the decisions. And I used to have a certain frustration with my (laughs) centres or other players who I would say to them, right, okay, they'd say, what's the move? And I would say, we'll just play what we see. And a lot of players had difficulty with that. They wanted to know what the move was. They preferred set They wanted something, a set piece. And the problem is in in rugby, it's a dynamic game. Nothing's ever perfect. So you don't get that perfect ball from the scrum half, which means that your defenders are upon you, which means that opportunity to try and do the dummy switch pop, whatever you want to do. is finished, but a huge gap has opened up in front of you, and you as an out-half have to exploit that space and try and gain territory. 
So I think it was from that and then my understanding of what was going on at the time when I came to Belfast, so that was in 2005-2006, and David Humphreys was uh, involved in Ulster Rugby, yeah. and I knew David from school. <laughs> he was in the year below me at school, so through that connection I was able to start to say, well, could you maybe send me some players, because I was interested in trying to understand how do players see gaps on the pitch, mm -hmm. can they see them, and can they exploit them, in other words, can they make that decision to pass the ball at the right moment in time. So. If you want to do this, if you really want to understand decision making, you have to recreate for that player the type of conditions they would have on the pitch. So when I would speak to David and I would say, well, how are you training decision making at the minute? So he was just retiring as a player or just had retired possibly at that time. He said, well, we would watch a video together, we'd press pause and then it'd be like, what would you do next? And I was going, but that is just not how it is on the pitch for a start. A, you can't press pause. And B, very importantly, from the decision maker's point of view, the viewpoint you have from video is very different when mm. you're immersed in the game. You're not, you're not up from you're not the, up, the stands level. Exactly, yeah. where you can see space, where you can see the geometry, if you want, is totally different. And from the brain's perspective, what drives those decisions is what you're able to see mm. at that moment in time. So that what we, we call this the optics or the geometry has to be preserved. So the laboratory must be like life. Mm -hmm. So the technology you're using has to preserve what it is you would do on the pitch. So you have to present to the player the type of information they would see. And that's where VR is fantastic because it puts you in the position of a player. Mm -hmm. But of course, you're not running the risk of having the defenders run and yes, tackle you. Yeah. But it's that safe environment. And if you think about it, simulators have been around for a long time, yeah. particularly for flying, also for surgery, Formula One. Yeah. A lot of the racing drivers trained in simulators, I think Verstappen uh, actually trained on the, 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 the games console. And there <laughs> what that's about is again simulating that visual information yeah. and responding to it. In fact, I think British Airways insist that their pilots do two twice a year, three sessions mm -hmm. on the simulator. And if you think about it, why do they do that? Because in the simulator you can present novel scenarios, yeah. you can test their decision making in ways you don't want to test in real life Absolutely, because you don't yeah. want to suddenly put the plane into free fall and see what happens. You would prefer the mistakes are made exactly. in the simulator. Without the passengers. So. Absolutely. <laughs> so, the, the, I, I understand the, the, the concept of that and that whole idea of intelligent decisions then mm -hmm. and putting the, the virtual reality side, yeah. especially as that technology yeah. improves yeah. year on year, yeah. it must be a sort of interesting experiment. Absolutely. But then how do you make that into something that, uh, I suppose, for you guys as a, as a business, is a product? Yeah, and that's an excellent question because absolutely there's VR and that's where the opportunity came in. When I started using VR, as I said, like almost 20 years ago now, they were very clunky headsets. Um, they were very expensive, mm. possibly about 10,000 euro. And when I moved uh, to Belfast 12 years ago, and Queen's um, helped to build me a lab, which was fantastic, there it cost probably about 80 to 90,000. Right. To do what you can actually do now with an HTC Vive headset for two to three thousand yeah so the opportunity for me has been in advancements in technology and that's been driven by that hardware sector and also software as well so you've now got game engines that are much easier to program high quality graphics animations different things like that so from an immersive technology perspective it's come on some bounds and that's a massive opportunity 
So from the business perspective, I think what our USP is, because there's lots of people in that visualization VR sector in sports, but they're using 360 degree video. I like to think where we can create a business is around my know-how, mm -hmm. the knowledge, and what we call the decision analytics. So back to data analytics again, mm. this is massive. And if you think about it, lots of our behaviours generate data points, whether it's what we type on the keyboard, say on a phone, how we move through the streets and we're picked up by GPS, all those behaviours are generating data points. Mm. It's no different than what we're trying to do in Incisive. And in fact, what the player does within the virtual environment, we've got sensors attached to their body, that analysis of what they do, their actions, mm. is actually the decisions they're making. So we have complex analytics in mind, not that complex, but but through our knowledge, we're able to distill out what they did, when they did it, and how they did it. So the idea being that using the analytics that are gained from, from the scenarios you put them in, yeah. you're able to change that behaviour then or help them make better choices? Firstly, profile it. Mm -hmm. And then this has been really quite interesting, and maybe something I underestimated was that ability to give everybody exactly the same test. So if you think in sport, if you're like a goalkeeper and you're facing some free kicks, even from David Beckham, he wouldn't be able to produce exactly the same free kick every time. So if you had two, three different goalkeepers in there, each one would be slightly different. Mm. So in terms from a psychologist's perspective, you're not able to really compare like with like. If you think about an exam in school, all the pupils sit the same exam. Different types of questions have different levels of difficulty. Mm -hmm. Within our VR content, we can manipulate the level of difficulty, right. but yet we can give everybody exactly the same test. So we're able to compare performance very reliably across players, which I think is quite exciting for clubs because they don't have that opportunity right now. I think, you know, you, it's, I, big, I love my sport as well, but uh, I, I suppose the, the difference you have with any sort of sport, whether it's training and, you know, say like cricket in the nets or um, you know, rugby where you wouldn't go in that sort of full mm -hmm. contact scenario That's sometimes, right. you know, so they actually been able to recreate that situation yeah. and have somebody get a go at doing that more than once in a, in, a, in, a, in a controlled environment, yeah. as you said, that, you know, that, that must certainly change the way that people are going to approach yeah. how they coach, how they set teams out, how they, how they go into a game. Yeah, for me, VR and what we're trying to do should never replace reality. Mm. What it's about is adding value. I'm always very clear about immersive technologies or any use of technology needs to add value. So I talked about profiling players, but you're quite right. There's the two other areas. One, to train smarter. So it gives you those opportunities to practice and to try something different. And we had the English Cricket Board over last year um, and they were very keen on giving their academy players an opportunity to face a 90 mile per hour ball in a simulator where you're not going to run the risk of injury. Yeah. It. it also gives them an opportunity to try some risky shots mm -hmm. where the risks are very low. In other words, they're not going to get hurt or they're not going to get out. So it allows them to hone their skills or calibrate their, their actions to what they're seeing around mm -hmm. them. And this, the third one is really what you just mentioned as well about protecting players. Mm -hmm. So again, for cricket, if you want to give somebody practice in hitting a 90 mile per hour shot and you have to ask your bowlers to deliver those balls each mm -hmm. time, well, you're going to put strain on them. And sure. the same with the goalkeeper who wants to practice a free kick. You don't need another 21 players on the pitch that goalkeeper can do it on their own. And I think from the, the physical preparation coaches, the strength and condition coaches, they're very excited about having the technology that allows somebody to train the mind, but limits the amount of physical effort required. Mm. So what kind of, uh, you, you, you came in to call an incisive uh, startup business. 
what stage are you at and I suppose what are the the challenges uh, ahead for you where do you want to where do you want to take it to well so we're very early stage we only incorporated in May um, that second half of May as I said after much dithering and then, I mean it was really thanks to the propel program and uh, the whole environment here at One Bass has been fantastic. I mean, I just feel I've been on such a steep learning curve. I talked earlier about being out of my depth. I still feel I'm out of my depth. <laughs> but I'm At least you speak so the much. language. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm starting to learn the language. Um, I don't know if I speak the language, but I'm certainly trying to learn. Uh, it's been a fantastic experience. And I think, you know, you, you're never too old to do these things, being more mature than some of the others. You often think that entrepreneurs are, are young, often males, often people who can code themselves. But I think it, it, from our cohort as well, that's certainly not the case. There's some very inspiring female founders who are doing lots of different, very exciting things. So I think this whole cohort has been fantastic. The environment here, this co-working idea is just brilliant and I think it's going to transform how people do work. We learn from each other, we're there to support each other and I think that's what's great. So we're very early stage, we're looking for some initial funding to get some minimally viable product in soccer done first, so that's what we're, we're doing at the minute. Um, we're getting on quite well with the virtual reality content and then it's about building that database mm. behind because again the power of our product will be in the analysis yeah. and the amount of data we generate from one player in one session is about 1.4 million data points. Right. So wow. you don't realise if you're sampling each sensor 100 times a second you've got three different axes of, of movement coming in there so very quickly it multiplies mm. up and it's an awful lot of data to distill out something meaningful from. So I think that is something maybe underestimated a little, the challenges there is the difference between doing research in a lab and then actually trying to create a business is also the challenge and generate revenue and something that yeah. customers want. I'm excited about getting something that can actually take to our early adopters and get out there. So we've made some initial contacts with some of the big premiership football clubs. So hopefully we'll be out there in the next two, three months getting it tested, refining the product, and then of course we're looking for investment just like any startup. Are you doing this yourself you, or do you have uh, people working with you? Um, my co-founder is actually my husband, which actually helps. So he keeps me right in terms of all the operations and getting all of that side of the business sorted, yeah. which is extremely important. At the minute, we don't have any money really. So we're not employing anybody. We've got a little bit of money that we use to subcontract and bring mm -hmm. people on board. I've been so overwhelmed by the generosity of people, so we're delighted to have a couple of people, Farsad and James, helping with the whole technical side of things. And then we've got JD, who's uh, was a strength and condition coach at Ulster Rugby for many years. I worked with through the research, helping keeping us right around the whole performance side of things. And with Clean Sheet, that's our soccer product we're developing with Michael Doherty providing invaluable input as a goalkeeper himself, but mm. also a goalkeeping coach in terms of making sure those metrics make sense. So by the end of the year, you maybe are into testing and then next year, you, it's, it's as you say, get, the, get that funding on board and then hopefully... Building a team. Bu building the yeah. most of that team. And the team's key to anything. <laughs> well, you know, it's like in sport, the, key, the team is key and in any business, the team is key. So we're excited about that. We'll look forward to being able to start to employ our, our, our first team members. I guess uh, I mentioned earlier on there that I suppose the scale of the opportunity is probably huge given yeah. such big business that uh, that sport is, but sport and data analytics 
Yeah. You're probably not the first to notice it. Yeah. So, like, how do you think you're gonna scale it? Yeah, mm-hmm. scale it and, and kind of be that that kind of product in amongst or that business in amongst probably many people who'll be trying to sell something around yeah. this. Yeah. You know, what what's gonna set you guys apart? Do you think? Well, as I said before, I think a lot of it's around the research that we've done. Yeah. We've tried and tested this across many different sports. We understand the foundations and what needs to be done. But for me, the vision's much bigger. Sports mm-hmm. just the starting point. Where we see it actually going is also into health. So, I mean, I suppose it's the opportunities. People have been coming to me with ideas, which has been brilliant. So the Qatari Olympic Sports Museum are trying to build a series of interactives attached to their Aspire Academy, which is this fantastic um, sports academy out in Qatar. They've obviously got the World Cup coming up there in a few years' time, but they have a big problem with obesity in Qatar. So what they're really trying to do is they want to take the action intelligence concept that I've developed I've developed five pillars of action intelligence that where we can profile movement performance in terms of the decision making and then recognize where somebody's real ability lies. So things like balance, interception, force control, rhythmic coordination and manual dexterity. So by having that sort of little spider plot that's going to show you your action intelligence in each of those, it can help signpost people towards physical activities that they're actually quite good at. So I'm particularly excited about that. I was in London on Saturday giving a talk to the sports physios over there and they were particularly interested in the opportunity that would afford them as well. Because with these sensors and your ability to capture movement in a very robust, reliable way, you're able to start to measure and profile movement mm. in a way that you can't really do with, say, your mobile phone in your pocket. Sure. So I think that's that. And then the big vision is I, I was, as part of my academic role last year, I was involved in the NEPSRC, that's the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council in the UK. Artificial intelligence, everybody talks about AI this, AI that. As a psychologist, I think it's totally overrated, overrated, particularly machine learning. For me, things like the Tesla car required 780 million miles of driving to at least get it to the point where it could start to drive itself. Compare that to a learner driver. They probably have 20 hours driving mm-hmm. and they're able to drive a car. Yeah. I also like to show the example of Boston Dynamics. I don't know if you've ever seen mm-hmm. those robots yeah, yeah. that can jump onto these blocks, they're bipedal, they can control their balance and you look and go, wow, that's amazing. Then I switch and I show the Robo World Cup where robots are trying to play soccer and they can't even kick the ball. They can't, they stand there, they can't even score a goal. And then I switch and show three-year-olds able to run around and chase a ball. So I think AI is a long way to go. And as somebody, uh, an eminent, um, I suppose, uh, engineer in the US said about deep, um, the deep mind project where the Go um, game was played, she said she'd be much more impressed if the computer could actually lift the piece and move it rather than just calculate where it should go. Yeah. We know computers are very good at calculations. We know that in terms of power of calculation, absolutely. But simple things like movement that we take for granted yeah. are very complex problems to solve in that way. I think by reverse engineering the brain, by using our knowledge of how do we as humans and animals, dogs, cats, birds, bees, whatever, how do they solve that problem? problem of navigating around the world and making decisions about what to do. Robots have to make decisions. Self-driving cars have to make decisions. So maybe our knowledge about how we use information in the world around us and decode that could also help design better mobile systems. Fascinating way of thinking about it. Yeah. Kathy, thank you very much. I think that's, that's, that's really, really exciting to hear about what you've got planned and wish you all the best. Thank you very much.